Welcome to our Ivy Academy live stream. And welcome back to those of you who have joined us for some or many of our live streams in the past. My name is Eric Morse, and today's live stream has been planned in collaboration with the Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship. As executive director of the Morissette Institute and current acting director of the Ivy Academy, I'm looking forward to hosting today's conversation. As you join this live stream, we encourage you to reflect on the land that you are on, who the traditional keepers of the land are, and on your relationship with the land. The members and staff of the Ivy Academy acknowledge the original caretakers and storytellers of the land on which we are situated. The Anishinaabek, the Haudenosaunee, the Attawandaran, and the Lenapewak peoples. We commit to honoring and celebrating their past, present, and future. As a professor of entrepreneurship at Ivy, I've had the pleasure of teaching, advising, collaborating, and getting to know many of our country's best and brightest entrepreneurs, including our guest today. We are thrilled to have Sikinder Singh Cassidy here with us today as we discuss the secrets behind successful risk-taking in your career and the surprising ways risk-taking can shape your leadership journey. Sukinder has recently written a book, Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive Even When You Fail, in which she shares many of her personal experiences on risk-taking. Before we jump into it, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest today. Sukinder Singh Cassidy is a leading digital CEO and entrepreneur with more than 25 years of leadership experience, founding, scaling, advising companies, including Google, Amazon, StubHub, Yodli, Joyous, and more. She is currently founder and chairman of The Board List, a premium talent marketplace for diverse leaders to be recommended and discovered for board and executive opportunities. Most recently, Sukinder served as the leader of StubHub, the premier global consumer ticketing marketplace for live entertainment, which she and her team sold for $4 billion in February 2020. Sukinder also currently serves as a board director at Urban Outfitters and Upstart, and as a member of the global advisory board of Time's Up. She previously served as a board member at Ericsson, TripAdvisor, Stitch Fix, J.Crew, and as a strategic advisor to Twitter. She is also a proven tech investor whose current and previous investments include Reformation, the Real Real, Stun Basket, Senrev, and more. Sukinder is also a graduate of the IVHBA program. Sukinder, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Uh, this was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I read the book and I have to say I, I really loved it. Um, we got a chance to talk a little bit mm -hmm. off screen. I'm, I'm definitely ordering uh, a copy for each of my kids. Um, and, I, and I think, is that maybe the age group that you were looking for? Although I have to say, you know, I got an awful lot out of it as well. Um, well, when I wrote the book, I really wrote it thinking that everybody struggles with their relationship with risk, particularly when it comes to sort of growth in our careers. Uh, I do think that sort of the sweet spot is probably kind of early grads to mid-career professionals, though I've been surprised on either end. I definitely have people who sent me pictures of their, you know, like six, seven-year-old children reading the book. And on the other extreme, definitely had the privilege of hearing from older people who feel like, it's helpful in their own career transitions. So, um, yeah. Well, as an older person, I, I have to say that uh, I, I enjoyed it immensely. It was uh, mm -hmm. it was a, a fun read. Uh, it was great to see all the different experiences that you've been through, both positive and negative, and how that contributed to your career. So, what what drove you to write the book, and and why now? Well, um, it's interesting. People often, you know, think that when somebody writes a book, maybe somebody like me, I'm trying to pivot my career, or, you know, become something other than what I am, which is honestly just an operator. Um, but I think I wrote the book because for the last I don't know, 10 plus years, I sort of keep being in leadership call talks where people sort of want to understand what it takes to be successful. You know, you know, those talks where people are like, tell me, like, what is a choice you made to be successful? And I always want to say to people two things. Number one, there was never a single choice. I mean, in hindsight, we can say, well, gosh, this choice is more important than the other. But I'm like, honestly, what if I told you it was just, I just kept choosing, including through a lot of failures. Um, so I felt like there's this mystery people have around success and kind of choice and risk. And I think it, I wanted to debunk that a little bit. Uh, so that was kind of idea and reason number one. And then sort of reason number two is like, Outside in, which is very related, people look at careers and think of them as like sort of this linear path to success. And then inside out, the minute you reverse it, you, you know, you see the non-linearity of it, but also that there are some patterns that are worth paying attention to. They, may just, they just may not be the patterns you think they are. 
Okay. And yeah, the sine curve at the end of the book uh, gets <laughs> into that a little bit for sure. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I've never interviewed an author before. So lots of interviews with entrepreneurs, but so I'm going to treat it that way. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say to people, you're still not interviewing an author. You just happen to be interviewing somebody who wrote a book that I hope is that helpful. Uh, I, I, th I think it really is. I think you have a unique take on risk. One, one that I really quite like. It's, uh, you know, it's not a big bet. It's a series. Can you just talk a little bit about how you think about risk and why you think of it as a series of decisions rather than, you know, a single point in time, perhaps? Well, I think you're hitting on sort of the core thesis of the book, which is that we, I think we all have what I call the myth of the single choice. This idea that one choice is going to make or break us. And we all know or are the people who like struggle with making one mighty choice. You know, we want to make it perfect because we think, and so this leads to a lot of pressure. And in fact, pressure can lead to inaction or it can lead to impulsiveness. It can lead to a lot of things. But I think the core thesis of the book is, you know, if you underweighted the pressure of a single choice and put more pressure on building the muscle of just continuing to choose and iterating your way through choices, you will build a risk muscle that quite frankly is going to lead you to outsized returns. The converse is it may also lead to more failures than the person beside you while on the path to greater success. So I think that's sort of the core essence of the book. And, um, and what I hope promises to people. And then I think secondly, this idea of like the how to achieve that, because I think when you think about um, the, uh, the norms we always hear, we hear, have a growth mindset, uh, you know, celebrate failure, <laughs> take more risks. People get told to take more risks. Like that's not a new idea, right? right but I think right. the how of it is what people struggle with. Like, well, what do you mean? Like, what does it mean to, you know, keep making more choices? So um, I hope the book really kind of, uh, amplifies, you know, a set of practices that can make that a reality. Okay. And it's kind of a simple equation, but it, once you start to unpack it, which you do in the book, it gets much more complicated, but there's kind of this idea of fear of missing out. Mm -hmm. If that's greater than the fear of failure, yeah. then it's a possibility. It's an yeah. opportunity to look at. Can yeah, you take so, me through that a little bit more? Yeah, sure, sure. I think you're, you're coming to the, what we call in the book, the universal risk equation, which your, your point is quite simple. You know, all of us have fear of missing out. And, and when we're thinking about new choices, it's quite easy to ramp our fear of missing out. We can keep visualizing the positive and imagining all these new possibilities. But then the other half of us has what we call fear of failure, right? And it's not that risk takers don't have a fear of failure, they do. But what we're kind of, they're able to get into action is because whatever their fear of failure and whatever their fear of missing out, when their fear of missing out is greater than their fear of failure, they'll act. And when the reverse is true, no matter how big their fear of missing out, when our fear of failure is bigger even than that, we just won't. And so you want to master this equation. And, uh, and I think to your point, it's the equation itself is quite simple. I think master, mastering it is a little harder because most people yeah. keep confronting not their fear of missing out, but their fear of failure. So the question is, how do you get that small enough? It never goes away entirely, but small enough to just be able to get into action. You talk about confronting it, identifying, you know, what are those fears? And you've kind of broken that up into different pieces, mm -hmm. um, whether it's ego, it's, it's financial, um, uh, or even personal. Um, mm -hmm. So can you talk about, you know, times in your life maybe where those became really important and, and you were making a decision with those very much in mind? Sure, sure. I mean, I name ego, financial, and personal uh, risks and fears in any new choice, because they're what's content, they're what we face throughout our life. And quite frankly, we think that when we get, let's say, financial freedom, they go away. They don't, they just change. So um, I'll give you maybe an example of each one. Um, when I was younger uh, and an Ivy grad, I really struggled to get my first job. I mean, it was, it's, a, it's a longer story in the book. I ultimately got it. Um, but I was quite restless. So quite, quite frankly, I was, wanted to be an entrepreneur after I got my first job. Well, I had some success. I didn't know how. And so I quit my job and moved to Silicon Valley. But when most people say, well, you quit your job, that's a big financial risk. Actually, by that time, because I had made two or three different career moves, I was convinced I was employable. Like I knew, like after going through my first experience where it took me a year to find my next job and then it got subsequently easier, I knew I was employable. So for me, my financial risk, quite frankly, which people would say quitting your job is large, I was like, well, I'm single. I have $10,000 in the bank, which when you're young is a lot. And by the way, I have the fallback of my parents, which means if I can't find a job, if I quit my job and I can't find a new one, uh, I can always go home and live with my parents. So I diminished my fear of, of financial risk enough to move, right? So that's right. an early example. 
as I got more successful, and I certainly um, had a large, uh, big part of my career in the middle of my career was at Google, where Google achieved outside financial success, and I achieved a lot of executive prominence and financial security. Right. At that point, you would think, well, gee, like you must be really free to act. But I wanted to go be CEO of a startup. And at that point, it was all ego risk. It was all ego and it was personal, actually. The ego risk was literally what's going to happen here if I make a startup choice that's quite risky and I fail. Like, like what a fall from grace. And I um, really battled my ego to be able to say, like, look, I want to go back to the startup world. And if I fail, what will people think of me? That was a, like a really big one to confront. Um, and then even personal, when I went back into startup world that time, and once again later, I was I, I was having my third child at the time. And right. I would say to people, I have I have had heavy negotiations with my husband all the way through kind of my career choices because our children yeah. and him are really facing the repercussions of like the pursuit of my professional ambition. And so certainly I would say throughout my career, they've been uh, laid apart. They've just been ongoing kind of choice-making and reconciliation of like the personal mm -hmm. cost of some of those choices, which never really go away, but you negotiate as best you can. My husband and I kind of came to a series of accommodations where I could both have a third child and still pursue a career, which quite frankly was a discussion in and of itself, right? You're like, how can you pursue sure. that? Do you shortchange your family? So yeah, those are three examples. Yeah, and I love in the book, you kind of even score them and, and you yeah. know, put numbers to them as you go. But one piece of that that, uh, that I that I loved and I took something away from because I think it's something that I wish I would have paid more attention to when you face those big uh, decisions in your career. And that's, you know, what's the choice after the choice? Yes. So, uh, yeah, and you alluded to it a little bit there that, you know, what if it goes wrong? Okay, yeah. well, what's my next best option? And, and I think that's a really interesting take. Can you tell us a little more about that? Sure. Well, in the book, you know, most people are very comfortable with the idea of postmorteming. We you know when a product fails, when a a business case fails, we say, like, we'll do the postmortem, figure out, take the learning. But in order to get into action, and we talked about shrink that fear of failure, the pre-mortem is often more important, which is like, okay, let me make think through the choice and think through the failure mode of that choice. So if that choice fails, how many more choices do I have? And let's say a choice you make fails. If you have 10, 5, 10, 3, 4 more options after a choice fails, chances are it's not as big a risk as you think, right? Right. Um, in fact, Jeff Bezos talks about this in his shareholder letter when he went public. He sort of said, hey, the reason we make so, so many decisions at Amazon is because most decisions are two-way doors. You can go through them, and if you fail, you can come back or go somewhere else. There are very right. few things in life that are a one-way door, and the same is true of our careers. Um, right. So I think this idea of the pre-mortem, naming your fears, sizing them, and then even thinking about what you do after. Some people call that worst-case scenario planning. It's really what gets you comfortable, you know, with acting by shrinking your active fear of failure. Once you see how many choices you may still have, even yeah. if your original choice fails. Yeah, I love that. So we're we're naming our fears. Yes. And you know, we're we're gonna do the planning that we can do, and yeah. we can't always do everything because there's a lot in our environment, which you also point out. And we look at what our next best choice is if this were to go wrong. And I think people discount the experience. You know, even if it goes bad, uh, yeah. there's a lot you learn and, and take away from that that uh, the next employer may really value. And yeah, and so in fact, that's almost entirely true. When you look at LinkedIn and what top recruiters seek, all the LinkedIn research tells you that the number one skill that recruiters want when they employ somebody is agility. <laughs> yeah. So the irony of all of this is that people want learners and people who are agile. And often that comes from, as you said, you know, making choices that aren't always obvious or aren't always safe, but accelerate your learning in your path. There's one other thing you said, though, I think is important when we think about this sort of um, fear of failure mode. You know, we talk about naming our risks, sizing our risks, you know, doing the pre-mortem. The last thing I'll say to people is plan more for the downside than the up. And I think that's actually quite hard because when we're looking at things that are risky, we want to live only in the positive. I get that. Like, I want to rent my FOMO too. Like, I'm always dreaming about what's possible. As an entrepreneur, <laughs> every time you see data that contradicts your belief system, you have to live in the future, right? And think about um, the possibilities. But the converse is also true. When we think about getting into action, I often think that like this idea of sort of naming, sizing your risk, and then being able to sit with like that something cannot work out today and still work out in the long term that's almost the magic combination, right? Which is just like, it's okay to be yeah. a short-term realist and a long-term optimist. And in fact, you know, Jim Collins talks about this in Good to Great, like the people, the leaders who hold that duality almost do the best. 
Um, yeah. And I think a lot of pre-morteming is about that, like planning more for the downside than the up. So being a realist and a paranoid about the short term while being relatively optimistic about your ability to respond and to keep choosing. Before we leave this, uh, one of the questions that came in, I think it relates to the story you tell in the book about your sister is, you know, you've been in a job for a long time, you know, uh, and there's inherent risk in the status quo as well. Yes. So if you're unfulfilled, if it's not working out in that status quo, but you're comfortable, how do you, how do you break out of that? Well, it's interesting. I would say to people, people always say, well, when you know it's time to make a new choice. And I'm like, one of two things is happening. You're either unfulfilled or you're not having impact, right? So unfulfilled, not happy, right? Maybe you're having impact, but something doesn't feel right. Number two is you're literally not producing the outcomes you want to produce. And so it's like time to reevaluate. So I think, first of all, that's a telltale time, telltale way to know if it's time to make a choice. And learning fits into that quite easily, right? Because if you say, well, I'm like, you know, I'm making an impact. And I'm okay in fulfillment, but not great. It's often means like you're tapped out. You're not learning anything right. new. You don't feel challenged. And so like learning is really a sub-symptom of one of those two things. Um, so what do I say to people? And I was like, well, that's a great time to sort of bring out, you know, what people are more familiar with. It's just like a white paper on your goals. But what I always say to people is like, hey, create like the three to five things you want to achieve and then start brainstorming, you know, all the choices you might make to achieve them. It sounds really simple. The hard part is not coming up with the list. The hard part is getting into motion. And so the book yeah. is almost entirely about getting into motion and let's say how to be a better planner, how to be better about picking your goals. I sort of am like, whatever your goals are, they are. Like, I'm not here to debate them. Most of them here to say like, okay, the path between you and your goals is not about, can you itemize them even more clearly? It's <laughs> how do you get into motion <laughs> and, pick, and pick even the smallest increment uh, you know, of action towards one of your goals. So, yeah. um, but it all starts with when you're feeling dissatisfied um, or not having the impact you want. I think that's a great transition into the, you know, fear of missing outside of the equation yes. now. And you've yes. talked about goals and that's, that's mm -hmm. one of the key pieces here is, you know, what are your goals and aspirations, but also what are your passions? Um, mm -hmm. What do you really want to do? Uh, what, what's going on in the world around you and who are the people you're going to work with? And I think that's kind of the, the mix that you talked about. Um, do you want to pick out one or two or three or maybe all of those and just talk about them a little bit in terms of how you phrased it through your career? Sure, sure. Well, I would say like, you know, okay, there's this early phase where we call it get going, right? Which is, you know, that you want something different. And, you know, in that, in, in that model, I almost like, like, even before you have a perfect plan, I'm like, if you know, generally you want something different, I would say early risks to take or just risk to discover what that might be. So you know, I think to your point, like maybe a smart risk taker when you get started is just getting going. Like it's taking some risk of your time or energy to, you know, discover what's possible. And one of the things I find most interesting is most people think risk taking begins, being a smart risk taker begins when you make a choice. And I'm like, well, if somebody gave you one of one choice reactively and said, okay, choose your current <laughs> thing or this thing, that's the way most people choose. I'm like, well, wait a second. It's when some, a new choice comes up that you're like, well, maybe I'm dissatisfied with my current choice, but why wouldn't you just step back for a moment and say, hey, I can take some risk of my time or energy just to discover all the things that are possible. So I think early on, you know, being a smart risk taker is simply about getting going and using risk taking as a discovery process. Most people don't give themselves license to make a choice until they have a choice to make, if that makes sense. Right, but that's sort of right. like the last stage in the pipeline. First, <laughs> like maximize all your choices. That's a big one. And then I think, as you pointed out, I say there's the path to smarter risk taking, I think, is not just about maximizing your choices. It's about the kind of things you choose to move towards. And I think you identified one of them there, like the who, like when we make smart choices, right. it's not just about the what of our passions. Often the who we choose to work with has disproportionate importance in our likelihood of success. Um, so there are sort of a bunch of things in there that we can dissect if you want about making being a smarter risk taker once you get going. No, so true. I, I think, uh, you know, who you work with is critical to your growth, you know, especially early in your career, but also true later in your career. Uh, in fact, maybe later in your career, all you care about is who you yeah. work with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but it's uh, in terms of the beginning, it's it's what you learn. And you also have a thing in here in terms of the people, the who you call business priests, those people mm -hmm. that have kind of helped you on this journey to help you weigh Mm -hmm. particular decisions in your life. Can you talk about that? It's an interesting phrase, and I love the idea. Sure, the idea of the professional priest. Well, I would say, of course, it's obvious when we make big decisions, we all get counsel from other people, right? Um, 
But the who that you get counsel from is really interesting because I see two or three things go on. People, number one, turn to their spouses for opinions on their professional choices. And of course, your spouse or partner has something to weigh. But we often are asking them what they would do, not what they know of us and what they think we should do. So like even reorienting the question of the people you're closest to might produce a different response, right? It's not the response about what's good for them. It's about what do they think that's good for us. But regardless, the people in our personal lives also, of course, have a vested interest in what we choose. And they may not have all the context. So I'm almost like, well, go find your professional priest. And people are like, well, what do you mean by your professional priest? And there (laughs) you're looking for the people in your life who have a, understand your professional context, are completely unbiased about anything other than your success. They're just trying to help you make a good decision. They have no vested interest. And often these are people who we may have worked with in the past. They're people who might be in our professional orbit, who we've admired, who we want to go ask. It might be a colleague who's similarly situated. And at different points in my career, I've definitely had a lot of professional priests. But one of the most interesting thing is most of my professional priests are people I've worked with before because they know me well, (laughs) my Mm. strengths, my weaknesses, um, by the time I'm intersecting with them as a priest, they're no longer my boss or, you know, and maybe in a position to have even a vested interest, but there's somebody who has an interest in seeing me succeed. Um, so I think those are some of the places you might find your professional priests. You know, other people want to find them at a cocktail party, and I'm always fairly skeptical about finding a professional priest at a cocktail party. Um, it sounds really cool in practice, but in theory, they don't, you know, but in, in reality, they don't know you that well. Um, right. You know, and Maybe they have a great perspective on the outside world, but they may not know you. Um, so I like that magical combination. It knows the context you're in and knows you, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think one of the other things you talk a little bit about passion and, you know, you, you do distinguish between is this passion that's going to be part of a career choice going forward or is this passion that's part of a, you know, a hobby, something you'll, you love to do, but it may not be part of your professional uh, path as you go forward. Mm-hmm. Anything uh, to bring to the table on that? Well, I think when it comes to passion, um, I think two things are true. First of all, people tell us to pursue our passions, but they often change. Uh, I can, I'm somebody who never thought I'd be passionate about financial services. My first job in investment banking, I wanted to work in LA, which was you know serving the entertainment media industry. I did not get that assignment. Instead, I was working on savings and loans. And I remember thinking like, Really? But I was so by that point grateful to have a job that I committed to myself that, you know, I was going to um, do my best at it. And I ended up working with what I call a super boss, somebody who like put me on an accelerated path to learning, gave me exposure far above like my pay grade. Um, And I got passionate about the topic because I got passionate about working with him. And so I think this idea is that passions, you know, passions may change, of course, Look, let's be clear. My last job was running StubHub. I love live experiences. I'd be the last person to tell you that passions have no place in our business life. But I think when we don't know what our passions are, it's easier to get passionate about about who we're working with. And great people can make any experience one that's fulfilling and we find exciting. Um, And of course, the greatest marriage is great people plus, you know, a topic that you're enduringly interested in. It's just hard, hard to know what that is early on. Um, And quite frankly, you don't often find the great intersection of like the thing you're passionate about, you can make a lot of money at it, and it has superb people like that's like, you know, that's a hard trifecta to get. So I'm always like, put the who over the what, and hopefully one day you have both. Yeah, it takes, it takes a lot of people a a lifetime to find that intersection. Yeah, absolutely. One of the recurring themes in the book is start small and practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that kind of comes through a lot of the different things that you talk about throughout the book. Can you, you know, it, it's almost exercising that, uh, that muscle. risk muscle in a sense. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think when we make micro choices and people are like, what do you mean by taking a micro risk? I'm like, well, speaking up at work today is a micro risk. You may or may not do it, but you know, the passing up the opportunity to let's say speak up in a meeting you passed up a risk you could have taken to have more impact. Like, so risk could be as small as that or as big as quitting your job and changing your career, right? They're all choices and they all have uncertain outcomes. So risks run from smallest to biggest. But as I always say, if you were struggling to get into action, a micro risk is the easiest risk to take. It has almost no, you know, you can recover pretty easily, but you also can take the learnings. And as we said, just keep practicing that muscle. I think the benefit of smaller risk taking is not just that it trains us to sort of like, become a little inured to failure, like little things is that you take little risks, you know, they start, they become less scary. It has one other 
really important benefit, which is we often think that the size of the risk is correlated to the size of the reward. And like quite often, it's not. Like it really isn't. <laughs> and so I've had small risks that had outsized rewards and you know, large risks I'd taken that I thought for sure would sink my career, which failed to. One of the one that's a favorite of mine, which isn't in the book, but I'll explain it. I was in London. It was my second job, my second real job. I'd been working at Merrill Lynch as an investment banker, and I got the opportunity to work for a television company, Sky, which is like the largest satellite broadcaster in the UK. And at the time, it was like a, a darling, you know, a darling for having been the first satellite broadcaster. It disrupted the industry, and it ultimately became a crown jewel in the News Corp uh, family. It was owned by News Corp. And so I was working for the CFO. I'd gotten a job there and I had to do an internal audit project with a member of the board where we were looking for cost saving opportunities. So, you know, I'm on this task force, I'm pretty young and it's decided that we're gonna go present our findings at the CEO's country house in, outside of London. So we all go. And so we all go and we have our, you know, we've done all this work. And at one point I just take a risk at that moment to add my opinion on one of these savings areas. And so, you know, we come back from Sam Chisholm was the CEO, very famous CEO. We come back from that country meeting, it's a Sunday. And on Monday, I get a call to Sam's office. And so I'm like, I'm an analyst. So I go up to Sam's office and he literally was like, do you know why you're here? And I'm like, I don't. And Sam promotes me on the spot because he liked hearing what I had to say the day before and yanks me out of my current job to go work for the COO of the company. He's like, well, I think, I think you should go work for David, which was his number two. And his number two was equally famous because together they built Sky. Right, and so right. literally overnight, because I took the risk to speak up in a meeting, I get boosted to the executive floor. I end up working for the number two. I mean, like, so that was a little risk with an outsized reward and who knew? And as I said, it's just hard to know which choice among your choices is going to unlock something, whether you, you know, intend it or you don't. Um, yeah. But you never know until you try. So I would say to people, like, can't take the macro risk, take the micro risk. I love it. And, you know, a lot of that started with your sales job, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Lots of micro risks all the time. Selling, that's all it is. <laughs> Very good. I have a great question here from uh, someone, and it has to do with uh, something you touch on in the book in terms of equity and inclusion, gender differences. Uh, the question is, women are often told they're considered to be more risk averse. Has this been your experience with the women you have worked or known in your life? And if so, what advice do you have for women to overcome the fear of taking a risk when it may carry different impacts on their, their lives? Well, I think you're hitting kind of one of the more important topics, which is what inherently is different for people of you know, different backgrounds, minorities, genders, when it comes to this topic of risk taking. First of all, let me just talk about what the research says. I wished it to be untrue that women took le less risk statistically than men. Unfortunately, in a meta-analysis of all the 150 different pieces of research that have been done on gender-based risk-taking, a meta-analysis found that across all of those research dimensions and different studies, women in 14 of 16 cases uh, took less risk than men. Okay, so what does that all mean? So first of all, one of the other things the research found is, in fact, there's a confirming bias, to your point. If you tell women that they're less capable of taking risks, they take less risks. They confirm the bias. So pointing it out doesn't help. In fact, it may do the opposite. But the other important nuance to risk-taking among genders is, A, it's there's data that the experience of risk-taking, the adversity decreases with experience. So that's good news. And then number two, people will take risks, men or women, in contexts that they value and in context, they think they'll be successful. So number one, if you value a context as a woman, you may, you may still take as much risk as a man. But number two, for both genders, you, you have to have a feeling that you can be successful in that context, which sort of leads to the third piece here, which is, are you doing the women in your organization a service when you say, well, women take less risk, you just need to take more risk. <laughs> like, you know, I think you want to encourage people without kind of creating this confirming bias. And that comes in the way of allyship, it comes in the way of, it comes in the way of putting them in front of opportunities that they may think they're less qualified for, but are, you know, equally capable of enduring. Sure. By the way, it, mean, it often means building a pipeline of opportunities where it's not sure. gender balanced to go. And people always talk about this. I'm like, well, women do say no to opportunity at a disproportionate rate, even the good kind of risk. 
So if you want to have a gender balanced team, you may need to encourage women more. You may need to have your pipeline be 80-20 women to men, because just to end up with an equal number of leaders at the table, you may need to account for that bias without calling out that bias, if that makes sense. So um, you want to stack the odds in some ways of allowing women to take more risk without being presumptive that they want to take less. And I think that's a very fine balance. I think the last thing that that is really important to note on this topic. So my career is people say like, what do you do differently for men versus women? I'm like, well, first of all, I never call out the women and presume they're any less ambitious than the men. But what I hope I do as a leader is give people the space to feel included um, by virtue of my own and safe to take risks by virtue of example. So I like to admit my imperfections as a leader. I like to admit where I took a risk and it's not right, by the way. I like to admit that I'm leaving the office to go see my daughter play water polo. And, you know, if that's an example of taking risk where it allows somebody else to the same freedom to voice that they have a personal life, that they're or a family caregiving situation or what have you, um, then I want to be able to, you know, model the freedom I want other people to have. So um, I try not to call out individual groups and say, like, it must be less so or must be more the case for you than others. But I think we want to obviously be modeling what we want to see among our teams. And that's part of the one of your current projects, right? The board list. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the board list is um, a platform I started five years ago. It's my side hustle, uh, a startup by Bootstrapped, um, which is really a platform where diverse leaders of any kind can be nominated and then discovered for board opportunity and executive opportunity. So I wanted to create a platform that sort of leveled the playing field, and to your point, without really presuming that women have any less desire to be on boards or are any less deserving. Quite frankly, uh, we need all of the diverse perspectives we can in the boardroom if companies are going to evolve, um, but wanted to do it in some systemic way. Yeah. You know, we all want to make an impact. And I think that's a, a universal truth. We want, we want to know that what we do makes a difference. And you talk about impact uh, quite a bit in the book. Um, what is there seven different ways or seven different <laughs> dimensions to that? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we don't need to cover all of them. We want to leave something for the readers, but yes, uh, maybe pick out one or two and, and, and talk about how you see impact, I guess. Sure. Well, first of all, I think impact is a fairly loaded term. Uh, impact for some people means philanthropy. You know, for me, impact as defined in the book is broader. I say when I say when you want to be an impact player, you want to be somebody who can create results and outcomes, right? Because I feel like um, creating impact is always a precursor to success. We may create impact and not get the, you know, everything we imagined. I've certainly been in, you know, careers at startups where we created plenty of impact, but the startup wasn't successful, right? Like even if we were the pioneer as an example in the space, but the converse is success never comes without impact. So if you aim for impact, if you aim for being somebody who can produce outcomes and results faster, you know, and, um, and, and be what I call an impact player, ultimately in some dimension, success will follow may not follow the way you think, but it will follow as long as you consistently right. produce impact. If the, the converse is never true, you will never produce success <laughs> consistently if you don't produce impact first. So that's what I mean by being an impact player. And one tip, well, maybe it's the one I just talked about. Take the micro risk to be a truth teller or a truth seeker. I would yeah. say that, you know, some of the most frightening risks for people to take, the everyday risks that people don't take are often almost about ego. What we will think about ourselves, what others will think of us and our ideas. So then we just bite them back. But you never will advance a conversation or an idea if you don't ask a question, if you have one, if you don't share a truth, you know, if it leads to better yeah. debate, if you don't question. Um, so I think that, you know, a really simple one for what I have more impact, I would say, is be a truth teller or a truth seeker. And if you're a leader, your job is to encourage all the truth tellers and seekers to bring their right. point of view to the table, because that's how that's how you get impact faster <laughs> and learning faster. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I, that. Truth teller, truth seeker, I think was a really interesting one in the book. Maybe you can talk just about a stepping into the white space. What do you mean? Sure, sure. I love uh, um, I love this one because it's not obvious. I see so many leaders who think success is about succeeding in what they own. Makes so much sense, right? People come in right. and they're like, well, this is what my group did. And here's all the things that we controlled and we delivered. Yet, I, as a CEO and many of the people on the Zoom, I'm sure are leaders, can totally identify with the problem when everybody does their job perfectly and yet the project fails, right? So everybody comes in right. green on their checklist. Every individual leader says, like, my team is doing it. 
yet the project doesn't work, right? And you're like, well, why doesn't the project work? I mean, we all know that what's missing is what's in the white space. Like, and so um, a former executive who worked for me, a former entrepreneur used to call this like, think about your job as you stand in a circle and you draw a circle around yourself and that's your responsibility. And so you line up all the circles, you know, let's say um, on a floor. And when you line up all the circles, there's gaps in between the circles. Like the circles don't all fill in all the spaces and a company is like all the circles put together. So when you fail, it's not because somebody didn't just do their job. Sometimes it's about that, but often it's because what's missing is the thing in the cracks, right? It may be an insight. It may be being the challenger in the room that says, hey, guess what? We're all doing our thing yet, you know, the project is failing. Something else is going on in this system. Or maybe the person who just says, hey, I'm going to get you all in the room because like, you know, you're all so busy executing that we're missing the macro landscape of what's like shifting our, you know, results. But somebody is calling out what's in the white space and the best leaders, the best people who take risks, they step into the white space. They're like, I know my job is only this, but for the project to succeed, for us to get the best collective result or outcome, I'm going to have to do more than my job. I'm going to have to go step in. It might be somebody else's job. It may be the unknown part of the job. It's the unsexiest part of the job. And you might say, well, if I take it, if I claim it, somebody's going to get mad. I'm stepping on somebody's toes. But you could even be the facilitator to say like, hey, And that takes courage. You know, that's the kind of risk that does lead to greater outcomes or faster. Outcomes. Yeah, I love it. And you, some cool stories in uh, in the book, again, uh, like your executive assistant uh, going in on the weekend to do customer, you know, customer interaction service. because it needed to be done, right? Uh, Absolutely. Very- yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, uh, yeah, I adored him for his ability to step into the white space. Uh, so. Impact fails for a number of different reasons. Uh, yeah. I love the peanut butter example you use. Um, you know, keeping your fingernails clean is very colorful. How you described it. Talk about maybe one or two of those that keeps us from having the impact we we really want to have. Sure. And of course, in all of these conversations about impact, we're just talking about another kind of risk taking. Right? There's risk taking when we make a transition, but then there's mostly the risk taking we do every day to have impact at our current jobs because that's what's unlocking the reward of our current choice. So what we're talking about here is really risks you can take and and the risks you don't take that can really hurt you disproportionately. So you manage, you kind of identified one, which is like keeping your fingernails clean. So many people want to only, let's say, fly high or do the best parts of a project, right? It's the same thing. But often, you know, the delivery happens when you do the worst parts of a project or like the parts that are really unsexy. Um, And I think the example I give in the book is when I was running uh, Asia Pacific and Latin America at Google, nobody needs to feel sorry for me. Like Google was like, uh, I mean, (laughs) it's a ridiculously great place to work when you want to look successful all the time. So nobody should say boohoo me. But I did have at Google the team that had maybe the hardest job, which is we had Asia Pacific and Latin America. We had three markets where Google was abjectly failing, Japan, Korea, and China. In Korea, we had 4% market share. Like Google didn't understand what 4% market share looked like because it's used to having like majority market share in every uh, market it was in. We had, you know, we had very heterogeneous markets with different societal norms. We had markets where censorship existed. We had markets where, you know, the police could show up and take away the general manager from Google and like lock them up in jail. And so I had all of these emerging markets. Um, and at one point it was very frustrating because I was always fighting for resources. And, you know, I like, felt like my team got the short end of the stick. And Bill Campbell, a pretty famous coach in Silicon Valley, he coached Steve Jobs, he coached Eric Schmidt. He was just like a management guru. Bill was coaching a bunch of executives, myself included. And he once said to me at some point, he's like, Sukinder, like, you should be proud of the fact that your team has all the dirt underneath its fingernails. Like, literally, you guys are fighting for market share. Like, you know, like, and if your fingernails are dirty, that's a sign you're having impact and doing what it take, needs to get the job done. And I think after that point, I realized, like, instead of complaining about how hard it was, I mean, what I didn't have, that, like, when we have dirt underneath our fingernails, we likely are getting in there to have the impact or to do the work that's needed to have the impact you want to deliver. Yeah, I, I love that. Between, you know, you got to get your fingernails dirty. That's yeah, the white space. Yeah, you want to step into the messy stuff. Well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You almost exactly. never get a clean slate, ever. Yeah. <laughs> We have a couple of questions. I'm going to go back a little bit. Several women actually have written in and said, look, I, I'm in tech. I'm in a leadership position. I'm quite nervous about uh, taking maternity leave, uh, especially in the states where they have less uh, decent, let's say, uh, mm-hmm. 
uh, policies. So can you talk a little bit about that, how you manage that in your career? Sure. Um, so look, there is no doubt that there is risk for women when they leave fully, let's say, their career in the, in the, in the mid-stages of their career. This is where a lot of women drop out of the leadership and management funnel. And, I, um, and there's, there's risks on all sides, right? If you think about you step out and forget the company doing anything, you know, in a world like tech, by the time you come back, things may have changed. Like, I don't even mean that you're like just the company's situation, what's happened, like you're just missing, there's a knowledge gap, right? Whatever has advanced when you've been there. And then the people who've been pacing with that knowledge gap. And, um, and so I think, and well, while companies can put in protections, they do have them. Canada has a year of maternity leave. In the States, I would say, absent what state by state happens, many companies have generous maternity policies or what have you there's still a risk. You leave and there's a knowledge gap or what have you. Um, one of the things I would say that I've tried to do, I'm not saying I've done it perfectly, is, you know, A, before you leave, think about what you can negotiate um, that may give you room to maneuver when you get back. Number two, if you're contemplating leaving fully, same thing. Instead of saying it's not possible, ask what is possible. Because if you can, and I'm not saying don't take maternity leave. Maternity leave in some ways is, a shorter stint than let's say leaving to care give, you know, um, having to take time off during COVID because your children are literally being homeschooled by you. There's even bigger risks, right? Maternity is one, but when women disproportionately need to step out to care give in some way, it's about, is there anything between a binary choice of leaving entirely and staying entirely that you could ask for? So I always say think in increments and then what can you negotiate now that may be helpful when you get back? or even to stay in as much as you want to stay in. Um, so look, that's on, you know, that's on us to identify things that are not binary choices. What's on companies, of course, is if you have wealth and capacity, which many tech companies do, they're incredibly well-funded, <laughs> and some of them are you know, incredible moneymakers, it's about what conditions can you create that allow people need to need to leave for any kind of caregiving to stay in. Because the cost of losing that talent and starting over is enormous. And I think companies are just starting to realize that if you're small, maybe you can't offer money, but you can offer flexibility. If you're large, maybe you can offer flexibility and resources financially. Like these, and, and they're all weighed against the cost of dropping out. The only reason I have more faith now that people care, these companies are starting to measure their leadership level, you know, women and people of color at their leadership levels. So literally, if they have to measure and report them, all of a sudden, when a bunch of women drop out of the middle, like replacing that cadre of talent at the leisure is even harder, more expensive and harder to find. So yeah. I think as companies have to report on these numbers, they care more about stay, uh, creating ways for people to stay in. Yeah, thanks. And I uh, got a couple of reactions already. Uh, thanks for the answer. That was great. Um, I'm gonna take you back. This is kind of, I, I, it's in the book, but it's also my perception of, of reading through it. So you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I love the idea of your career as a portfolio of risks in mm -hmm. a sense. Yeah. And, you know, you're going to have winners and you're going to have losers, just, you know, kind of like portfolio theory as an investor, uh, mm -hmm. I would think about it. And to think of your career that way really helps you get your head around the risk of any one decision. Mm -hmm. Is that part of what you were thinking as you were going through this as well? Or is that uh, just maybe a I think, different take? I think you're hitting it. Like, I think the notion of portfolio theory is accurate. And I, I mean, you can take that in a number of different directions. So let's just think about two ways it's very similar. Number one is if you look at the best investment managers in the world, they don't pick one stock their whole career. They're like great stock pickers, right? And they understand right. that it's both frequency of choices as well as size of choices. You know, they can make, I mean, they're managing portfolio where they have a bunch of singles and doubles. And then, you know, a home run attempt. So they're managing, you know, safe choices and stretch choices, if that makes sense, as a portfolio. Now, yeah. they're doing it simultaneously. Most of us are not doing five things simultaneously. We're maximizing one choice at a time. But I think this idea of risk diversification, like if you've made three choices in your last three career choices that haven't worked for you, maybe it's time to step back and be like, do I need to risk diversify? Not just financially, but like if you've been in three failed startups, it may be the time to be like a smart risk taker now. It's not about picking that a fourth time. It may be about diagnosing what didn't work. And maybe you're going to go the opposite end of the spectrum and go get a job at a very large and secure company. That might be the best risk to take right now on a portfolio basis. As measured by singly, you'd be like, well, take more risk doesn't mean like every single time take more risk. It means about being a right. smart risk taker across a number of choices, which may be sometimes the right choice is less risk. Sometimes it's more risk. Yeah. 
Um, so I think this idea of portfolio also applies to sort of in singular choices, learning from the risk you just took in order to inform the next one and doing some risk diversification is as much of a part of that analysis. Yeah, I, I love that. I, and it's going to be become part of my teaching, to be honest. I uh, have always said, look, entrepreneurs are not gamblers. You know, they, they manage risk, they diversify their risk, uh, they distribute risk. Um, but this idea of risk across a career is kind of new. Uh, and I, I, I love it. I think it just makes so much sense. And yet we don't think of it enough. Well, thank you. I mean, I know when I was an entrepreneur, I was very fearful that if it didn't work out, I could not make, make my way back to the corporate world. I was like, what happens if like nobody wants me back? You know, if I ever want to go back to running something big, and so during that period, I made sure I got on a couple of boards and just, you know, I used my prior experience at Google as it was definitely a calling card that was relevant. You know, all the time I was an entrepreneur, nobody forgot that I had been at Google. I didn't let them forget. I mean, I joined a couple of boards and stayed relevant and sitting in sort of larger scale companies in the boardroom because I just, it was my risk diversification. You know, by the way, it also paid a salary when I paid myself nothing. I mean, those right. were, you know, those who are just trying to keep relevant and diversify even my own risk as an entrepreneur. The other thing that I noticed from your career is you're always open to opportunity. You always looked for an, the discussion, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Let's talk to interesting people. Let's find out what's going on. And it's amazing how that can bring more opportunity to you. Mm -hmm. I think in, in the Valley, they often call it being in the flow. Uh, mm -hmm. you've, you've called it pipelining. Um, yes. You know, Can you talk just a little bit about that and how you've managed yeah, that sure. over your career? Um, well, I think you're talking about passive pipelining even more than active. Like, I yeah. talk about active pipelining when you're trying to figure out a new choice, like get into discovery mode and, you know, and I say, I think it's ironic um, in Canada, applying to schools is let's say understood in the U S applying to schools is like a pro sport in itself. I watch these parents <laughs> and kids manage the application process, but it's a perfect example of pipelining in parallel. They apply to like 50 schools. They have safety schools. They have stretch schools. They have different majors. I mean, it is real. And then they stop. Then they make a choice and then nobody ever goes back to that kind of portfolio uh, pipeline, right? And I'm like, well, don't you need to do that multiple times in your career? Um, so that's yeah. the idea of pipelining. But pipelining passively, to your point is, even when you're not looking to make a choice, if you're pipelining passively, if somebody says, meet an interesting person, just take this call from a recruiter, it's all just data that you're logging. So when you're ready to make a choice, you have more data than the average person, Right. So I'm always yeah. just logging data and opportunities because I just want to understand, even when I'm perfectly happy with my choice, I know there may be a day where I'm looking for a new executive and I'm happy about the person I met, or I'm looking for a new choice and I know at least what's happening in the market. Um, so yeah, I, pipelining and passively pipelining people think it's a waste of time. And I think like it just keeps you current. Uh, absolutely. You know, one of the other themes you talk about in the book is, and it has to do with, um, you know, fear of missing out is that tailwind idea. And, yeah. you know, you're, you're very generous in, in crediting tailwinds and, and some of that. Uh, but it has been an interesting run in terms of being in the Valley over the mm -hmm. course of your career. Can you, can you point out one or two people maybe uh, that, that really made a big difference in terms of how you perceived your career as you went through uh, the last 25 years? So one I think that was super interesting for me was Ram Shuri Ram. So uh, this is both an uh, environment and uh, people choice. As you pointed out, I moved to Silicon Valley in 1997, just hoping to be an entrepreneur and not knowing how. I was like, oh, if I put myself with smart people. And I also love the weather. I was like, this is a great place. <laughs> Compared to St. Catharines, it's warm all yeah. year long. Um, so I moved. And as I said, that generously, that was a time where, you know, the internet was just starting to boom. But one of the internet darlings of that era, if you recall, was Netscape. And Ram Shuriram was an executive who right. uh, was an early sales executive at Netscape, built his own career there, and then ended up being the CEO of a startup I joined called Jungly. And we sold Jungly to Amazon six months later, based on the fact that we'd create, we had pivoted the company's technology, which was really about getting data from across the web, to create a first-generation shopping service, which helped, which helped you compare prices from different retailers right. across the web. And even in 1998, I guess this is the time when the company was sold, Jeff Bezos was imagining Amazon Marketplace. Imagine that 20 years ago. And so he wanted to have other retailers' products and prices available on his site at the same time that he was building categories. So he has sure. the foresight to buy Jungly, but Jungly had the foresight, to your point, to just get into e-commerce super early. Okay, what does this all have to do with Ram? So Ram is my mentor. He's my boss at, uh, at Jungly. And then when Amazon acquires Jungly, he's still my boss. 
But based on his angel investment in an early darling, his selling of another one, he goes on to become an angel investor in other companies. The first one he funds, first angel investor in Google. First one. Um, yeah. Second company, one of the other companies he funds is a company called Yodely. And Yodely is like trying to do this scraping of data across the internet of all your financial services, all your financial information. So I'm working for Rom. We're both at Amazon. Rom is investing in other companies, including Google, uh, with his newfound wealth. Um, and remember, just think about these names like Netscape, Netscape, yeah. Amazon, Amazon, Google. I mean, Amazing. so this is what it means to be in the flow. But I had worked yeah. for Rom, and Rom thought I was a great business executive. And um, Rom knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. So he invests in Yodely, um, along with several of the other founders of, of, of uh, generally. And on a weekend when I'm working for him at Amazon, he's like, hey, Yodely is five engineers. They've got this great technology, very similar to what we did at Jungly, but applied in a different space. And they're looking for a business founder. So mm. go take a look. And to them, he says, I'm, you know, this young, but, you know, up and comer. And to me, he says, I've invested in the company. And I fly down over a weekend and I see the technology at work. I know Rom's money is in it. And uh, it's my chance to be a business founder. And I quit my job at Amazon and I end up working for Yodely. So, and Rom's an investor. And then five years after Yodely, I'm thinking about making my next move. I'm, you know, my current startup where I'm the founder has, I've done every job. It has a CEO. I have nothing left to learn. Um, and I say to Rom, I'm going to start a company. And Rom says, well, you should go talk to Google. And I'm like, Google's too big. You know, it's 100, it's 1200 people. It's maybe it was a thousand people. I'm like, it's too big. He's like, just go yeah. talk to them. And he tells them to talk to me. And lo and behold, Google ends up giving me an opportunity to build Google local and maps. And I go, and that again, ends up being a phenomenal opportunity. So like, this is what the environment and great people do for you. That combo. I'm in an environment where everything has tailwinds, e-commerce, internet growth, what yeah. have you. And then I managed to work for someone who himself you know, teaches me a lot, but brings me a tremendous amount of opportunity. And every time I tell him I'm looking for a new job, he's like, go there. <laughs> and luckily <laughs> for me, I said yes twice uh, and got a chance to start a company and join Google. Well, I, I think you, you chose possibility. Uh, I chose possibility, I think... but I was under a master of choosing possibility. Yeah. Uh, so when well, you learn fair, from a master, you get to do a bit of it too. So what's next for Sukender? I, uh, I think there's a good chance I'll be a CEO again. I guess I, I'm, 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 I'm unemployed. So if anybody has a great company for me to run, come tell me. But we sold StubHub last year. I spent um, time wanting to write this book. So I wrote this book. Um, and then helping the board list. We just raised some seed funding there. The board list continues to grow. Um, have been doing some investing. Um, so maybe there's a 75% chance I'll run something again, I hope. And a 25% chance I maybe just decide I want to help other entrepreneurs do the same thing and become an investor. But I'd probably yeah. lay odds that um, all choices available, I'd probably choose to run something again. I, I'm betting on that myself, actually. I think you'll do both. I think you'll help other entrepreneurs <laughs> as you're doing today, but I think you'll also uh, be operating again in, in the near term. Hey, I want to really thank you, Sekinder, so much for, for joining us today. Uh, there are, I can't even tell you how many uh, questions wanting to know if you would consider being uh, their professional priest. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, I guarantee there's somebody in your network who's a better professional priest for you than I am because they know you really well and that matters a lot. <laughs> That's right. Uh, the last thing I want to do is just uh, put the book up again. It really is great. Actually, just reading the cover is a who's who of Silicon Valley and uh, of Sikinder's network and and friends. And uh, reading the book, I, I found to be very, very rewarding for myself. And as I mentioned, I've purchased it for my two children as well. So I, I hope you'll take a look at it. It's a great read. And Sikinder, really, thank you so much for being with us uh, today. Thank you for hosting me. A lot of fun. So on behalf of the Ivy Academy and the Morissette Institute for Entrepreneurship, thank you uh, again, Sikinder, for joining us today. Uh, to all the folks that tuned in, we really appreciate you spending some time with us. You can also follow us on your favorite social network at Ivy Academy or sign up for the Academy's monthly newsletter at ivyacademy.com slash blog. Uh, thank you again for joining us and we look forward to seeing you next time. Cheers.